Welcome to Books on Air, the podcast that tells the story behind the book. It includes insights from authors about how they compose their work, what inspires them, and what they hope you'll take away from their book. Here's your host for this episode of Books on Air, Suzanne Harris. Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Sloan Fremont filling in for Suzanne Harris. This is a podcast where listeners get the secret story behind every book. Joining me today is John Bushka, author of the book, Do Ask, Do Tell, A Gay Conservative Lashes Back. This book is a personal story which shows how national and global issues affect what we expect, what we what will be expected of people personally. In John's case, the narrative considers adherence to gender roles in a time when we had a military draft. So, John, I want to welcome you to the Books on Air podcast. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So let's start out by telling the audience just a little bit about yourself and what led you to write your first book, Do Ask, Do Tell, A Gay Conservative Lashes Back. Okay, okay. Um, my story is that um, I sort of grew up as um, somewhat behind physically. Um, I was dyspraxic, that's the medical term for it. I was weaker than other boys physically and so forth, but I was a good student. And I started, and I was somewhat, maybe a little bit uh, Asperger-like, autistic, you could say. And I started becoming more active socially in, in high school, and um, particularly at a really good senior year, um, and started making friends with the people that were more intellectual, I would say, like in the Science Honor Society, went on a trip to Mount Washington that summer. When other people were going to a senior prom, we went to Mount Washington in New Hampshire from mm -hmm. D.C. area. I grew up in the D.C. area. Went away to college at William & Mary. Actually had a, chemi a chemistry scholarship. And right after I got into college, uh, kind of um, started having some issues with a roommate. Um, we actually were assigned, we had the same English professor, and we were kind of assigned to write some things by the professor that were maybe a little bit edgy for the time. And he started suspecting that I was gay and even said that because I'd had bright colored clothes, um, bright mm -hmm. colored shirts and everything. Well, that didn't mean anything. My father was a, a salesman for a glass company, Imperial Glass. And people, people in some ethnicities is with Bohemians or dressed that way. That meant absolutely nothing. But that, that is what he thought, and there was some tension, and it would web and wane. And as the semester went on, um, um, around Thanksgiving, we didn't have Thanksgiving off. And so my parents um, came down to see me Thanksgiving Day and take me out to dinner at the Williamsburg End. Um, and I had made a friend named, I uh, had made a friend who was a music composer, um, who had come from California, and I've actually composed some music, but he composed a lot more. And this other friend, we'll call him John, and came to dinner with us and everything. And we went out to Jamestown and everything, had a nice Thanksgiving day. And then my parents went away to Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, remember, they come from Arlington, Virginia, which is the suburb of Washington, D.C., where I grew up. Okay. And to visit some friends that had, I think, worked for the government and had moved away to Charlotte, like around 1954 or something, and now it's 1961. They were good friends of the family. So they went to spend the rest of Thanksgiving weekend with this, these other friends in Charlotte. And Friday afternoon after Thanksgiving, again, we had classes that day, and I guess I 
spent the afternoon in the library or something, went back to the dorm around five o'clock. It was a relatively warm day. It was kind of foggy and misty. It was the end of November, but it was like in the 60s outside. It was mild. I went into the dorm and went into the building, the second floor of Brown Hall and room 205. And there was a note on the door, a handwritten note for me to come and see the dean and men immediately. And it was a handwritten note that anybody could have read. Um, there was no privacy or anything. And, um, you know, the rooms at, at that time were small, some, sometimes two to a room, sometimes three to a room. But we, we were in a small two to a room with a bunk bed type of arrangement. And I did have patent medicines on my desk and everything. And there was something about room inspections and so forth. And so I went over to, I walked over to Wren Hall, which took about five minutes and went upstairs. And the dean was on the second floor on the Richmond Road side of the building, I think. And a very dark office and everything. And he did quiz me about the medicines at first. And then he started quizzing me about what was like in the dorm. And I finally came out and said that I thought I was a latent homosexual. And the word latent homosexual was intended to be like one word. In other words, I had felt like I was attracted to men, but I had not ever acted on it. I had not ever mm -hmm. had sex. So, um, and there had never been any sexual activity or anything. But, and so he said, well, he needed to get in touch with my parents don't worry, I'm, we're not going to ask you to leave school. He actually said that. But he and what asked, year was this? 1960? This was 1961. This is, this is the day after Thanksgiving. No okay. Thanksgiving. And, and so he... No, so he said, this is Friday, November 24th, I think, 1961. Okay, so he reached out to your parents then after that, and then what happened? Yeah, well, well, he called my parents. In other words, I gave him the name of the people he was staying with in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he would have had to call information and dial long distance with the with a long distance operator. This is 1961 when you had you had long distance and phone books and had you didn't have the moderns we have today. And so it would have come to a complete and total shock to my parents to get a call like this. I mean, the call I think I think the call from what my father said came in around eight in the evening or something. And so what happened then as a result so of that? Was, yeah, he was taken, the call, of course, would have been taken by the owner of the house, the friend. And so my father had said, well, the dean and the dean identified himself and said that they needed to come back to William, to Williamsburg to talk to me. Uh, he wanted to talk to, to him and, you know, my mother. And so they came back on Tuesday. But they stayed, from what my father said, they spent, they stayed in Charlotte all weekend with the parents. And I don't even know if my father told my mother what had happened before the end of the weekend. It would have been a very stressful thing for a couple to wonder why a dean wanted to talk to their only, yeah. and I was an only child. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, that's like, I think there was a movie like that one time, Carnage, um, where yeah. what the kids do cause a family to fall apart. Remember that God of Carnage or something? So the end result is I was taken out of school and um, wound up going to school at GW, living at home, and I without incident. And I graduated at the start of 1966. And there was a lot of interesting other stuff along the way. I had a full-time job for a while in 1963. I also spent 
a six months as an inpatient at NIH, and my parents would have to go to that for family art therapy. That was in the last half of 1962. And that was- So back to the school though. So you got kicked out of the dorms or you got kicked out of school altogether? I I got kicked out of school already. And I I would only be allowed to go back to school if a psychiatrist certified that it was okay for me to go back to school. You know, this is- this was a time when the psychiatric profession had a hold on homosexuality and, and benefited. This is one of the reasons why you had McCarthyism and you had um, witch hunts in the government and the State Department, because the psychiatric profession had was making money off of it. Well, Just right. like today, gender theory, who's making money on, we won't get into this too much here, but who's making money on at least according to the right, who's making money on all the tra- the transgender mm-hmm. stuff in schools. I mean, I think there's something really wrong going on today, but that's outside the scope of the book. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a big par- topic. it's sort it's of is parallel to what was going on then. Okay, so in the 60s, in. you were kicked out of college for the yeah. dean, um, you telling the dean that you were a homosexual. Yeah. Um, so they kicked you out of college, and the only way you could get back into college was if a psychologist, psychiatrist approved yeah. your your mental yeah. condition. Is that what yeah, it was? Yeah, approved or... that I could live in a dorm again. And okay, that's, that's what led to spending six months as an inpatient at NIH, the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, uh-huh. when and where they were having an experiment with college students that had been thrown out of school. There was actually a program to examine this problem in the fall of 1962 and some of the book deals with that there's one other there's one other little odd detail before we move on at the very beginning of the semester somebody came in to the room and told me that all the freshmen were supposed to go to a a hazing ceremony called the tribunals that's Mm -hmm. what they call the tribunals i think was in a basement in one of the other dorms or something where they would pick somebody and sh- one of the boys and shave his legs. There, there was actually a story, that, and I was actually told that. So what I simply did was not go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, again, that's a very odd story. Thinking about what's going on today is a very odd story to tell. You know that that came up like the first week, first or second week I was there. But let's let's move on to the fact that. Um, and I graduated in 1966 from um, G- George Washington University, which is in Foggy Bottom in Washington, D.C., living at home. Okay, got- so the psychiatrist approved. No, approved. I didn't have to because I didn't live in a dorm. I just okay, so only- okay, I got you. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so I and things that, other, you know, other things that happened, I've actually worked for a year at National. In, National Bureau of Standards and okay. So, in the interest of time, though, let's get back into the book and yeah. and what happened next. So, so yeah. after you were kicked out of college, then I understand you were in the military. So, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, first I went to graduate school, and I was an assistant instructor in mathematics, and then got a master's in math and wrote a thesis and everything. And after I grad, I got my master's in nineteen January of nineteen sixty eight at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. And I lived in a dorm there, and there were no incidents. Nothing ever happened. It, you know, everything was perfectly... And things had changed even in five years. I could mm-hmm. tell it wasn't like it used to be. It didn't, things had improved, though, even then. Um, but I... So then, um, during that period of time, 
I took the draft physical three times. I was four F the first time, but I figured because of the the scandal and because of security clearances, because gay people couldn't get security clearances in the past. Mm. That, so did that, you have to mark uh, that on an application or something, or how would they? Um, well, that's right. Well, what happened is the first time I took the, the draft physical was 1964. They did ask if you had homosexual tendencies. So I asked to take the physical again in 1966 while I was a grad student. I went into Kansas City and went to one of the state had a physical there. And they had stopped asking the question in 1966. Okay. So since they had don't ask, don't tell even then, even though uh -huh. nobody seems to know that. And then I was marked one Y. And I don't quite remember why I wasn't one A then. But then in, I took the physical again in the fall of 1967. Uh, and, said, um, and I was marked 1A. And so I was ready to be drafted on the 1st of February and early February of 1968 after I finished the degree. So I actually volunteered in order to make the chances better that I would get a better MOS. I volunteered for the draft. I had an RA number, but I only had to serve two years. So I went in the Army two weeks early on February 8th, 1968. And then I had an, inter <clears throat> an interesting time in, in basic training because I was physically behind. I wound up in special training mm -hmm. for four weeks, but I managed to get through that. I managed to get to where I could do, could pass the PCPT, but that was a difficult time. That was the time that Johnson announced he wasn't going to run. And then by the time that Martin Luther King was assassinated and we were supposedly on red alert, all that was kind of a sham to go into mm -hmm. Columbia, South Carolina and troll the streets, which we never did, but they talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, that was really weird. But I got out of basic in May of 1968 and then spent the summer in the Pentagon mm -hmm. with, an, with an, an MOS called 01E20, 01E20, which was mathematician. And it was kind of a sham because we really didn't do much other than examine force levels forced levels of deployments of combat support and combat service support and that kind of thing. It was in the Pentagon in the E-ring. And what I remember, there was very much this feeling that, as far as, far as the draft was concerned, that having the ability to, to wage conventional war, even in a faraway place like Vietnam, was actually a deterrent to ever to having nuclear war. And that was something that people actually said and believed, even though you didn't mm -hmm. hear it too much. But that was actually a justification for the draft in those days that mm -hmm. it made nuclear war less likely. So that was a, the scale. And remember, in 1962, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was a, a patient at NIH then. And because I was allowed to go to school in the evening at GW, I was going, you know, taking two courses at night. I was the only person on the ward that knew what was going on mm. when I was a patient. And right. I would come back and tell them what was going so again, So moving forward, um, I was, they tried to process me for a top secret security clearance in 19, you know, in 1968 in the summer. And they would not explain what happened, of course, but they transferred me out of the Pentagon to Fort Eustis, which is near William. Ironically, is ten miles from Williamsburg, um, you know, in southeastern Virginia, um, in September of 1968, and I spent the rest of my two years there. 
Um, and it was kind of a, and again, it was in a, in a unit that was, had this, had the MOS, um, was a combat, combat um, Developments Command Transportation Agency. So, okay. So, so let's go back to the book, though. Tell us how, about how these experiences impact. Okay. Your, okay. So we I, are running out of time. Through, you have to go through, you have to go through the, through all these years. Um, and then I worked at several jobs. I wanted to to come out again, so I came out again. So I wanted a job in New York City. I worked for NBC as a and learned got into mainframe computer programming finally, and worked for NBC from 1974 to 1978. And then something personal happened, which is another long story. And I decided I wanted to move someplace else. So I moved to Dallas in 1979 and lived in Dallas for ten for nine and a half years. And that's when the AIDS epidemic broke out. And of course, there was a horrible political consequences. I did not ever get infected. And I started changing my behavior so that I didn't. So I've never been infected, but it was um, in Dallas, they threatened to reinforce the sodomy laws with, with a much more draconian law in Texas in the mid-1980s before they had a test for HIV. Um, that was politically a very difficult time. I talk about that in the book. Not many people remember that time, and it kind of blew over once the cases started dropping and once they started having medications, you know, gradually started to improve. I came back, and then I worked, ironically, for two different companies. One of them was in healthcare, and then the other was credit reporting, a company called Chilton is now, is now Experian. But um, there was a layoff. There was going to be a, a merger and a layoff at the end of in 1988. So I decided to come back to D.C. and not, you know, take the risk. And I went to work for a consulting company in, in the middle of 88 in D.C., which was in healthcare. It was called Lewis. That was a really interesting experience. And then I wanted to be in a more stable environment. So I went to work for a company called USLICO, United Services Life. This is where it gets important um, in 1990. And that's where I stayed with that company and, and got bought by a company called NWNL in, in Minneapolis. And I moved to Minneapolis in 1997. But the reason I moved and I transferred, I actually leveraged the merger because by then Bill Clinton had uh, announced that he wanted to end the ban on gays in the military. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And that's when the compromise policy was don't ask, don't tell. And this is one of the most important points in the book. The reason that people in Congress, even some like Sam Nunn and experts like, you know, like Moscow's and so forth, the reason that they did object to it was the intimacy in the barracks, was the idea that people in the military don't go home at night and have privacy like you and I do, is that they have to live together all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what was going on in the barracks in, in the dorm 30 years before. Right. You know, right. School. So I saw I saw there was a real strange parallel. And that I happened to have the minister at First Baptist Church in the city of Washington, D.C., which is the church I grew up in, the time was Everett Goodwin, and he had contact built with Bill Clinton at the White House. And there have been a couple of books written already. One was Joe Steppen's Honor Bound about that midshipman who was thrown out of the Naval Academy just before he would have graduated with honors in 1987. For the, and his book called Honor Bound, I had read that. 
And so I went in and met with Dr. Goodwin about the about the whole policy of don't ask, don't tell, and everything. And he actually talked to somebody in the White House. He didn't talk to Clinton himself, but he talked to somebody in the White House about it. And so we actually wrote a letter about how you should lift the ban, and he actually delivered it to the White House in late mm. 1993. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the, the, the policy was passed, as you remember, as part of the defense appropriation. And then the don't ask, don't tell policy was very controversial for many years because a lot of times the military would break it with various kinds of witch hunts and various um, bases and so forth. So there was mm -hmm. a group called Service Members Legal Defense Network, or SLDN. I often worked, you know, corresponded with them a lot. And I decided in 1994 that I would write a book about these experiences. So this kind of becomes a meta interview is how, how I wrote the book. Well, okay. the company I was working for, United Services Life, sponsored focused on selling life insurance to the military. I felt like there would be a conflict of interest if I publicly did this. And so because of the merger, there was an opportunity to move to Minneapolis and work for the other, the holding company and just transfer and keep all of my benefits. Okay. Mm -hmm. They moved to Minneapolis. So because of the ban, essentially, even though I was a civilian, I moved to Minneapolis from Arlington and worked until there was another layoff of buyout by ING in 2001, which was after 9-11, which caused a lot of problems for the company. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that was the end. I was 58 years old by then. That was kind of the end of my IT career. And I came back to live with my mother. Well, I stayed in Minneapolis for about two more years and had some odd jobs and raising money for the Minnesota Orchestra, I worked as a debt collector. That was interesting. And um, yeah, so back let's go back to to the book yeah. here because unfortunately we're running out of time, so I'm gonna have to wrap us up here. But it sounds like from your experiences, what you've lived through back in the '60s and mm -hmm. how things were to seeing how things have you know changed to today. And your mm -hmm. book having um, you know, I think it's almost unbelievable <laughs> to hear your story um, mm -hmm. on what you you know lived through back then with how things, how you were treated, how things were and, and how that was considered normal and your, your experience in that and being able to, to tell that is, um, to me is fascinating to, to hear that because it's almost, it, like I said, it's almost unbelievable, um, sitting oh. here today, having this conversation, okay. There's, but there's... I, I want to, I do want to, cause unfortunately we have to wrap up. So I do want to ask you one final question here. Um, as it relates to your book, what would you hope that the readers would take away after reading your book? I would I would want them to to think about their individual their individual rights and individual responsibility and realize that external causes can affect how individual rights play out. Mm -hmm. And that was both best illustrated with the draft and the fact that you know only men were drafted. Mm -hmm. Today, for example, trans people have to register for selective service according to sex assigned at birth. Nobody seems mm -hmm. to realize that. Nobody ever talks about that, but it's right. true. And um, and that what we perceive is we found out during the pandemic, you know, which is not covered in the book because it happened after I wrote them. But what we found out is that individual rights, as we found out with the lockdowns and the, the you know, the controversy over vaccines and masks and all mm -hmm. of that. And we found out with other issues um, 
um, you know, war, the war in Ukraine. Right. Other, other countries are having the same, these same kinds of issues. That your personal rights can be taken away when external circumstances justify a more authoritarian control of people. And you're seeing this happen in other countries. Right. Um, so yeah, I, it, and... it's the fact that it's the fact that we don't share sacrifices equally and that some of us are more privileged than others. And of course, people are playing them as a race card, the critical race theory. But it's also when you have a family, one of the things, the ironic things about being a single man, even when I didn't have all the protections of the law all the time, I actually was better off with not having a family. I didn't have to spend money and have a lot of debt, you know, have an expensive mm -hmm. house and pay for borrow money a lot of money to pay for raising kids i was actually better off than most of the people who were married with kids and financially yeah. Yeah. and irony in other words i i sort of interrounded it or outflanked the entire problem of discrimination by sort of running around the, the edge of it it was sort of leaked or is on sort of like topologically disconnected or something so yeah back yeah and, and, John, and unfortunately we're running out of time so i'm gonna have to stop us here um but i want to thank you for joining us today on the, the books on air podcast it's been such an interesting topic and such an interesting conversation with you today okay and you can find more about the book do ask do tell a gay conservative lashes back on amazon and i'll link to the book in the show notes so be sure to check that out you've been listening to the books on air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net you can also hear this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Sloan Fremont, and I hope you'll join us for the next Books on Air podcast. Remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.